Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we begin a two-part message in Dr. Newfeld's series, The Ministry of Our Lord, called The First and the Last. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. One of the most curious, perhaps even maddening, confusing, and misunderstood of all Jesus' parables, well, that's found in Matthew chapter 20. You know, I'm going to take two days to discuss this, so if you're hearing this, I think you're going to have to be a part of part two as well in order to get the full scope of this thing. But let's start by just reading it. It's found in Matthew 21 to 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you. I choose to give it to this last worker as I give it to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Let me start by saying that there is a part of this parable that seems very familiar to me. You know, when I was a student, I worked in northern British Columbia one summer, and I was working at a sawmill. In fact, I was on what was then called the green chain. And that meant I was required to, along with someone on the other end, take cut boards off the chain, boards that had just been barely cut from raw lumber, boards that had not yet been dried in a kiln, and thus they were wet and heavy. You know, it was tough and it was demanding work and it required a fair degree of muscle. But I also remember how I got the job. I, along with everyone else who wanted the job, got there early and stood in a room and we were dressed and ready to go to work, gloves in hand, lunchbox, expecting to stay all day. The foreman would come into the room and point to a number of people standing there, and those people were instantly hired. Well, I was not, and I showed up again on the next day, and then again on the next, and again until one day he pointed at me and said I had a job. Now, as I said, it was very hard and physically demanding. It was demanding because it was summer work and it was hot. And if I were to think that someone who simply showed up at the last hour of work would have gotten paid the same as me, I'm sure I would have joined in with everyone else and complained loudly. Why? Because it's not fair. Yeah, I I hear the owner's argument. It's my money, he says, and don't I have the right to be generous if I choose to be generous? Well, I guess that's true. And didn't I pay you what I had contracted for? Yeah, true again. But even though that's true, it also seems true that it's unfair. 
And furthermore, when word gets out that the guys that showed up at the end of the day got paid as much as those who labored for the whole day, well, don't expect anyone to show up early in the future. You see what I'm saying? This parable seems frustrating. It seems unfair. And if you allow it to, it's going to make you hot under the collar so that you're going to come to the same conclusion you're on the side of the complainers who've been working hard all day long. Good. I'm glad we all got that out of our system. And I've come to realize that if you get someone's adrenaline running high, they actually listen to every word you're saying. So I guess not a soul who heard Jesus speak the parable actually forgot it that day. What's the parable about? And what are we supposed to learn? Well, let's start by stating that one thing I'm sure this parable is not attempting to communicate. See, this parable is not a teaching that you should not have served the Lord with all your heart through the heat of the day. And this parable does not teach us that we should not be motivated by rewards. See, if Jesus were wanting to teach us not to be motivated by rewards, well then, he's certainly contradicting to something that he said earlier. I mean, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Translation, serve me with a full heart, regardless of how hard it gets. No matter how hot the heat of the day becomes, no no matter how much it costs you, for if you persevere under the worst of trials, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven will be exceedingly great. Yeah, that's exactly what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And here in the parable of the laborers, why he seems to be saying, yeah, it might be a reward, but it certainly won't be any greater reward from those who expended very little effort and paid a very small price for following Jesus. In the end, surprise, everyone gets the same reward. See, this parable seems so wrong. It seems to discourage us from giving our all. And so it is vital that we understand what this parable is all about. And quite frankly, the point is clear. See, the very last verse, that is verse 16, Jesus sums up what he's saying. So the last will be first and the first last. But now notice that the last verse in the previous chapter, just before Jesus told this parable, that is in Matthew 19, verse 30, Jesus said, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So if the statement about the first and the last is made right before Jesus told this parable and then it's restated once he's finished the parable, well then clearly this parable is told to explain what Jesus means when he says the first will be last and the last first. Notice also that when we come to chapter 20, we begin with the word for. Not the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house, but for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. See, the word for means to signal to us that the parable that begins here not only explains what's meant by teaching about the first and the last, but about the meaning of the event that has just gone before. That is, we're meant to connect the event of the rich young ruler, his horrifying choice to choose money over eternal life. And then in consequence of the teaching that it's hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven, Peter, speaking for the twelve, It says, look, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What will we have? So clearly the discussion has been about the matter of rewards. See, the rich man didn't see the value of the reward of the kingdom of heaven. 
But we, says Peter, we've seen it. See, but Peter then asks the question, what then will we have? We've left everything to follow you. And of course, as we saw in our last study, Jesus told them that they would sit on 12 thrones judging Israel. You know, if that sounded strange to you, it's because in the world to come, we we can't imagine anyone needing to judge anyone else. Sin's going to be vanquished. What need will there be for a judge? But in the Old Testament, the judges were often leaders or rulers. And that, I think, is what Jesus meant. You 12 who have given up everything, you'll be given key roles of leadership in the world to come. And then comes a universal promise. Anyone who's left everything for the sake of the kingdom will find that they will receive a hundredfold in the world to come. So clearly, the parable Jesus told about the laborers in the vineyard has to do with rewards. And so in order to make sure that we understand the parable correctly, I thought it would be a very good exercise to establish what both Jesus and the Bible says about this matter of rewards. You know, it's very important because, at least as some see it, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard is a parable told against the expectation of rewards. See, I read one commentary that suggested that the problem with the first group was that they were hired, that they were working for wages rather than the joy of working in such a wonderful vineyard. In other words, according to this commentator, you know, they got disappointed because they had their eyes set on the reward. Well, now, you know, is that what the Bible teaches? Does it say, don't be motivated by a reward? See, it's important to ask this question because Jesus himself promises rewards as motivation. Indeed, I would argue there are people who have never understood Christian motivation at all, and for that reason, they're always in danger of falling back and deserting Christ. We need to spend not less, but far more time and effort talking about the motivation of rewards that energize us to follow Jesus. These are challenging days. Many across Canada find themselves in circumstances that they would have never imagined. In times of crisis, we often find ourselves searching for something to place our confidence in. And for many, that means a rediscovery of faith. Maybe you're experiencing this yourself. This is the reason Back to the Bible Canada is steadfastly committed to offering Bible teaching you can trust every day with every medium possible, including this radio program. In short, We're committed to remaining faithful in declaring the trustworthy Bible teaching you've come to expect. Wherever people are searching for God, we want to be there. Your support of all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, including Laugh Again and our young adult ministry in doubt, is essential. To discover more about these ministries or to find out about our national ministry event, The Gathering, this coming September 27th, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible. It is important to notice that Jesus was constantly motivating people by appealing to them or by motivating them with the promise of rewards. Simply undeniable. Matthew 6 verse 4, he commends giving that's done in secret and then he adds, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then two verses later, he talks about praying in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. 
And then in verse 18, he speaks about fasting in secret. And your father who sees you, he says, will reward you. And then in Matthew chapter 10, he speaks about receiving a prophet or a righteous person and then even giving a cup of cold water to one of Christ's disciples. He says of people who act in that way, they will by no means lose their reward. And so we hear Jesus time and again appealing to people's self-interest. Don't you want joy? Don't you want reward? Don't you know that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field and out of a rapturous delight in what he had found, gladly went and sold everything he had to buy that field. Notice that he didn't sell the field out of duty or an inner awareness that Christ wanted him to let go of everything in this world. I mean, you and I know that's how some people think. Oh my, how spiritually they think themselves to be when they make sacrifices for Jesus. It's as if, you know, at least this is how they think of it. It's as if Jesus now owes them one, given all that they have sacrificed. Did you know that there are missionaries whose ministry cost them everything, and eventually broke their health, who said, I never sacrificed a thing. See, from their vantage point, they merely gave up a lesser for a greater. I mean, after all, who believes that a man who sells all he has and buys a field, let's say it's worth $400,000, and it leaves them destitute of all their resources in order to buy the field with a treasure, a treasure worth untold billions. I mean, whoever thinks, oh, what a sacrifice that person made giving up that $400,000. No one thinks that way. See, what we really think is this. What a shrewd, wise, and satisfying investment that was. He must be overwhelmed with joy. Indeed, he never sacrificed anything. Rather, he invested everything for something greater. And that's Jesus' talk. Pray in secret. Be willing to suffer. Give everything away. Do it because you will find that your reward now, using Jesus' own words, will be 100-fold greater than what you invested. And then he says on top of that, as if that weren't stunning enough, and then on top of that, you'll receive eternal life. That's my promise to you. So we can say that following Jesus is a very good deal. Does that sound crass to you, to put it in that fashion? You know, it seems utilitarian. And here again, I return to the matter of the parable before us. You know, one commentator said that the sin of the first group, the ones that contracted with the master of the house, those ones had, in his words, a mercantile spirit, or they joined the vineyard only for what they could get. But as we've already seen, Jesus himself invites people to do just that. It's not as if it's only Jesus that talked that way. The apostles picked up on that language. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in his very famous teaching about our role in building on the foundation that has been laid, Paul speaks of the kind of materials we might use. You know, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Then, says Paul, comes the test of fire that tests the quality of each person's work. It's possible, says Paul, for the work of a lifetime to be burned up so that the person in question still gains eternal life, but they receive no further reward. See, we notice that this teaching is intended as motivation. Don't lose out on a great reward. Or we might think about what John said in 2 John verse 8. Watch yourselves, he said, so that you may not lose what you have worked for but may win a full reward, not a half reward, not a portion of a reward, but go full out. Don't lose any of the reward that's awaiting you. 
Indeed, the New Testament writers not only commend us to be motivated by thoughts of reward, they even go further. You know, they made the claim that even Jesus, whose ministry was tougher and more trying than any of us can ever dream, was himself motivated by thoughts of reward. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews said, Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, it all makes sense. When Jesus told the parable of the labors in the vineyard, he's in Perea and he's making plans to go to Jericho. He's going to go up that steep, ever-rising topography and until he makes it to Jerusalem by Passover. There he's going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. It's a horrifying scene of suffering that waits for him, and he knows it. And so how was Jesus? Remember now, he's fully man. And remember now that Paul said that he didn't use his position of divinity to his own advantage. So how was it that Jesus was able to set his sights on the cross and on the sufferings that awaited him without ever turning back? Well, the writer of Hebrews said he's able to do that by fixing his gaze on an object that lay just on the other side of the suffering. And that object was the reward. Let me offer an illustration. You know, I'm personally terrified of heights, and yet, in spite of my phobia, I have on occasion scaled some cliffs. Now, how did I do it? Well, I never looked down. I kept my eyes fixed and unmoved from the goal and utterly refused to look at the terror beneath me. And that's what Jesus did. He fixed his gaze on the joy set before him. He resolutely remembered that the Father was giving him a name above every other name and that he was to be honored as the bringer of salvation and that he was doing all of this for the glory of God. It filled him with pleasure, joy, and deep contentment and even passionate desire to go forward. And that's exactly what we have in Matthew 19. I mean, Peter, after seeing the catastrophe of the rich young ruler, well, he's overwhelmed. The ruler had no ability to see what was truly valuable. See, that rich man was like a child who's offered the choice between a chocolate bar or a bank account of billions, and he chooses the chocolate bar. But again, it is this that led Peter to ask, what then is there for us? He's heard Jesus appeal to reward on many occasions, and he knows that both he and the others have given up everything to follow Jesus. See, unlike Jesus, he's been unable to keep his eyes on the reward, and, and that's why he asks Jesus, what will there be for us? Please describe it to us. Help us to see it so that when we feel discouraged or when we're on the brink of faltering, that we won't be like the rich young fool and choose unwisely. Tell us again of our reward. We need more of that talk from you. We need a clear picture of what we have invested in. And with that, Jesus begins to paint a picture of the life to come. Now, now pause again and remember that not all rewards are only future. See, I would argue that the joy of the Lord is our strength, that delighting ourselves in the Lord is the project of a lifetime. I love what Richard Baxter, he's the great English Puritan pastor and author, he once said, May the living God, who is the portion and rest of the saints, make these our carnal minds so spiritual and our earthly hearts so heavenly that loving him and delighting in him may be the work of our lives. 
Indeed, that in itself is the great reward of this life that is by far greater than the fleeting pleasures of sin. To be so Christ-oriented so that our souls are truly filled with the pleasure of communing with Christ through his Spirit, so much so, so that we know the peace that passes all understanding. I mean, is that not the best way to live? Oh, yes, it is. But as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, that if in this life only we hope in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. And he said that because he was aware that living for Christ will involve sacrifice and suffering and poor treatment at the hands of men. And so, as we've said, Jesus gives his disciples a vision of heaven that too often escapes our notice. He speaks about ruling with him. Heaven is the fulfillment of the human mandate that we are called upon to rule and reign with Christ over all the works of his hands. And so when the new heaven and new earth emerge, we have to believe in an earth and in a universe that far exceeds our own. That is quite a thought. I mean, given the present universe is itself beyond our grasp. But it's not just grasping this. It's, It's to demonstrate the reign of God over all things. This is the reward of the righteous. So tell me, if you were to give up your life savings for the kingdom, that is, if you were to give up all this earth affords for the promise of what is to come, (laughs) what would you be giving up? The answer, you'd be giving up nothing. Indeed, everyone who fails to give up all things for the sake of Christ will spend eternity mourning at how blinded and short-sighted and self-absorbed they have been. They'll be shocked at what they gave up, those few scraps for what was offered. What fools. That's why we fly to Christ. So if Jesus told a parable of people working in a vineyard, it can't be a parable about not expecting too much. It must be about something else. Thanks, John. You know, the whole idea of gaining lesser or greater rewards is one that's hard for us to swallow, for most Christians to really get their heads around it. It it seems almost counterintuitive to what should motivate us as Christians. Yeah, I'm going to say that um, when we think that we should only be motivated because of, uh, you know, because it's the right thing to do, that when we, when we are motivated only by that, we become very proud. Uh, when we admit to ourselves that, look, I'm being motivated by rewards, um, then I am uh, no better than the next guy. And therefore, anything that I do for the kingdom, all glory goes to God, who is the rewarder of good behavior. So, I think, actually, that the understanding of rewards can help us to be more focused on what God is doing for us rather than our own value. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Ministry of Our Lord, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell. You know what? We're missing you. And the opportunities we've had in the past to get out and meet you face to face, share in times of worship and laughter, and the study of God's Word. So enough is enough. We want to invite you to be part of Back to the Bible Canada's The Gathering, taking place Sunday, September 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern. Join us on the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page and enjoy a time together with Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, special musical guests including friends Shane and Angela Weeb, and many more to be announced in the days ahead. So mark it on your calendar for this national ministry event, The Gathering. 
Learn more by visiting the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page, visit backtothebible.ca slash events, or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Remember, join us for The Gathering.